The first scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The second reading comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, it's uh, my distinct pleasure to welcome our guest speaker for today, uh, Dr. Justin Adore, uh, who is a good friend. He is senior pastor of Redeemer East Harlem. Uh, he's doing great and exciting work over there. Uh, Justin is the proud girl dad of two daughters, uh, the oldest of which is graduating high school this week. Um, so he, he's, he's, going, he's excited for that. Uh, but I'm excited to have him here. Uh, a few months ago, um, almost a year ago now, Justin sent me his dissertation and asked me to look it over. And it was this long thing, but I read it, and I came away just so blessed and encouraged um, because he wrote a lot, and he talked a lot about the kingdom, which he'll be preaching about today. So I'm very excited for us to hear about that. Um, so I'm going to welcome uh, Dr. Justin Adore. Good morning. It's so good to be with all of you. I have to say, um, I just recently finished all my dissertation stuff. That's the first time I've been introduced as doctor, so that feels good. Uh, I'm so glad to be here with you all. Um, yeah, it's been such a privilege over the last, uh, I guess really over the last year, uh, I've gotten the chance to get to know your pastors pretty well, and uh, they've become friends, and I've just been really grateful for that time and looking forward to much more time and heard some for just amazing things about what God's doing uh, in your church and through your church. Grateful for all of that, and so very grateful to be here uh, with you today. Uh, today, as you've, if you've heard already, today is Juneteenth. Uh, and one of, the, one of the things I want to start with is just acknowledging a couple of the really important reasons why um, <clears throat> spending a day and focusing on, on Juneteenth is important. Now, as you've heard, it's a celebration um, of the, uh, the day when the enslaved in Texas finally heard of the liberation uh, that had made a bit available to them through the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and again, while there's a lot of maybe good reasons why we should celebrate, there's two in particular that come to mind. The first for me is, of course, it's always important for us to consider and to think about those important milestones that become trajectory setters for our nation. And so it's important for us to look back and be able to say, yes, this was a great moment in our nation when uh, the uh, enslaved were finally set free. But the second thing that comes to mind for me uh, is actually, it's a, it's a very instructive reason, or um, instructive thing for us to consider, is that we need to process and be confronted by how such a wicked institution like race-based chattel slavery, became the norm amongst Christians? What were the, the theological assumptions that allowed such a grave injustice and idolatry to exist and to exist for centuries amongst those who claimed Christ? And maybe even more important for our topic and time today is do those theological assumptions still exist among us now? 
Now, I want to suggest that though the the terrible institution of race-based chattel slavery has been done away with, that too often the theological assumptions that allowed for it to have existed at all, those theological assumptions still remain amongst the church today. Specifically, that there's the the same uh, truncated understanding of the gospel that allowed the injustices of yesteryear persist today and often are the reason why the church continues to struggle in engaging issues of justice. And so what I want to do today, I want to spend our time looking at the two passages that we just heard read. In particular, I want to frame what we're going to do today around uh, Mark 1.14, which in the old King James Version said that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And if we take those, that statement slowly, uh, those, each one of those words actually matters a lot to how we approach this issue. You know, what does it mean that Jesus came to preach to proclaim a particular message? What does it uh, mean that he proclaimed the gospel? And what does it mean that the gospel that he preached was the kingdom of God? I want to consider each of those things today by considering what the gospel is, what the kingdom is, and then what the church is, and how the church ought to be preaching. Okay, So each one of those things, let's take a look at ultimately what the main message of Jesus was when he came, which was that the gospel, which was the gospel of the kingdom. So let's first take a look at what I mean by the gospel. What does the Bible mean by the gospel? Uh, this might sound obvious, but we cannot in any way move forward without a very robust definition of the gospel. To start, I want to take a look and consider uh, an article that Anthony Bradley uh, wrote several years ago. Uh, If you're not familiar with him, he's a a professor at King's College here in New York. And he wrote an article several years ago. Even as I read it, you're going to kind of get a little, or read the, the, um, the title of it, you'll start to get a glimpse of maybe what the article was about. But he said, Great Commission Christianity Keeps Blacks Away from Evangelicalism. Uh, And in the article, he's challenging the assumptions of what he calls Great Commission Christianity. It's a Christianity that lacks the proper theological convictions to address societal ills rightly. And he summarizes the assumptions of Great Commission Commission Christianity. I'm going to say GCC for the rest of uh, this stretch here. Uh, GCC summarizes those assumptions stating this. He said, for GCC, the gospel is the announcement of the good news of Jesus' work to restore sinful image bearers to the rightful worship of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God demonstrated on earth amongst a worshiping people, and redemption is God's work to, uh, to free his people from slavery. In other words, GCC highly emphasizes this uh, idea of personal salvation, of individual transformation, none of which is wrong. In fact, If we're defining the gospel and we don't include those ideas, then we have a truncated gospel, right? Those are vital ideas. However, if the gospel, and this is what Bradley goes on to argue, that if the gospel is only about personal salvation and individual transformation, then we've truncated the gospel's power, leaving no place for concern about injustices. In particular, Bradley goes on in the article to address how this theology often rooted in historic white evangelicalism, how it impacted African Americans over the years. And this is what he says. He says, the GCC doesn't typically preach a redemption of all creation. They never have. 
GCC preached a revivalistic, individualistic, truncated gospel to slaves on plantations and did not seek to free slaves from slavery. GCC did nothing to thwart and fight against lynching during Reconstruction. GCC did nothing to liberate blacks from Jim Crow. In fact, it was the opposite. It was typically GCC churches and church members in the South that fought against the black church-led civil rights movement. Fast forward to recent American racial tensions, and you will find a parallel. GCC advocates were unable to respond well to what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. It's no wonder that African Americans, who once aligned with Great Commission Christianity, divorced themselves from white evangelicalism. So, in the typical definition of GCC, which again emphasizes strongly personal conversion, individual transformation. This typical definition, in the typical de- definition, there's, there's an emphasis on you know, salvation from a sin-marred uh, world, but there's this underemphasis on addressing the effects of sin in the world. There's this uh, emphasis on turning from one's sin, but an underemphasis on repairing the impact of one's sin. It uh, it's spiritualizes liberation and freedom and focuses all on, on one's spiritual condition, but easily ignores the bondage of one's physical condition. This understanding of the gospel lacks the theological framework to lead followers of Jesus to be a people of justice in the world because justice is not the message. Personal conversion is the message. Now, over the years, as I've processed this and spoken on this, some, some push back and say, well, the gospel is the only hope, and that our only hope is changing the heart of people, and as we change the heart of people, that will eventually end in justice. And to some degree, I agree with that idea. But we also need to be clear, and this is really the whole point, we need to be clear that there are those over the course of church history that got the, the gospel quote-unquote right meaning they were very much, they had a high view of personal salvation, individual transformation. They got the gospel right, but at the very same time, were also perpetrators of injustice. I mean, there are theologians who we hold in extraordinary high esteem, particularly within our, you know, Presbyterian theological circles, who also participated in race-based enslavement. They were advocates of segregation, right? Those who got the gospel right were atrocious on issues of justice. And this, this idea, this has not gone away. I mean, this has is, this is bled not only into race relations and, and racial injustices, but across all kinds of different injustices. Uh, recently, there was a, a massive uh, report released concerning uh, sex abuse and cover-ups that took place in a very large evangelical uh, denomination. And there's so many heart-wrenching aspects of that report. But one of the things that stuck out to me is this issue that I'm talking about right now. Someone uh, who's in the report and is part of the scandal, when speaking to the report and the investigation of the sex abuse that was taking place, responded about the report and the investigation this way, saying that this whole thing should be seen for what it is, It's a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. It's not the gospel. It's not even part of the gospel. In other words, this whole thing that's happening, this investigation and all the sexual abuse that's coming out, that entire process has nothing to do with the gospel because the gospel is just about evangelism. This truncated gospel 
allows for one to quote-unquote get the gospel right and yet perpetuate injustice. And my friends, this should not be sufficient for us. That kind of truncated gospel is not a holistic understanding of what the Bible teaches about the gospel. So if that's not what the gospel definition ought to be, what should it look like? Well, uh, Bradley, again, back to his article, he juxtaposes uh, GCC, um, Christianity, with what he calls cosmic redemption Christianity. And he defines cosmic redemption this way. He says, until Christ returns, the antithesis between God and Satan must be recognized and dealt with spiritually, but also in aspects of social and cosmic activities. As believers seek to execute their spiritual, social, and cosmic mandates, This is why Christians do not have to ask whether or not certain justice issues in society are, quote, gospel issues. For cosmic redemption Christianity, and here's here's key, key, key statement, God bringing justice here and now is one aspect of announcing the redemption of God's cosmic kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ. In other words, personal salvation is not the only thing that Jesus accomplishes in his life, death, and resurrection. This salvation also moves us to reflect the character and the nature of the restored creation that's to come. I mean, this is Revelation 21, right? One day where we will will experience no more tears, no more mourning, no more death. It's it's the fullness of what Psalm 89 uh, describes and tells us that the foundations of God's throne are righteousness and justice. It's experiencing that in its fullest. That's the gospel too. John Stott, who's a a well-known theologian, he gets at something similar uh, in his reflections on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And in particular, he's commenting on Jesus's words, uh, blessed are the righteous. And what Stott is attempting to do is to push uh, against the instinct that believers uh, in Jesus can often have when thinking about righteousness as though righteousness is a personal righteousness kind of thing. And Stott, he makes the point that those who trust in Jesus, those who proclaim the gospel, will do so in a way that not only impacts how they're living every day, but also points to this cosmic uh, restoration, cosmic redemption. This is what Stott says. He says that biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. And social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking man's liberation from oppression together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the courts, integrity and business dealings, and honor in the home and family affairs. Christians are committed to hunger and thirst for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to God. In other words, biblical righteousness that does not include liberation from oppression, the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family is not true righteousness. And similarly, a gospel that does not work for justice, that views justice as secondary or tangential, or that cares only for the spiritual and not the physical, is a truncated gospel. And I start here because unless we have a vision for a gospel that is both about personal salvation and also justice, not as a side project, but rather as a central theme, then we have a truncated gospel. The other thing that we need to consider is not just how we define the gospel, but the other theological category that Jesus, again, comes to proclaim that we need to have a robust definition of is this idea of the kingdom of God. 
The other theological category, this is the other theological category that's often so misunderstood, that has over the years allowed grave injustices because the kingdom of God has been defined wrongly. Not having a robust kingdom of God theology inevitably will undermine our ability to pursue justice well. And so what I want to do is I want to start by um, just describing a little bit of how the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. And I also want to recognize that the kingdom of God and kingdom of God theology is one of the more complex things to try to articulate. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing. There was a, uh, someone who was doing a research study trying to uh, consider all the different ways that the kingdom of God has been talked about. And he ended up creating a bibliography of all the publications that have been written about the kingdom of God in the 20th century and found there were over 10,000 publications on just the kingdom of God alone. Right? There are endless conceptions of how to define and understand the kingdom of God. But let's just consider briefly, I promise I won't try to summarize 10,000 publications, but let's consider just briefly, what is the kingdom of God? I mean, biblically defining it can be complex, but here's some of the ways that, you know, we can think about it. You know, biblically, when we think about the kingdom of God, is the kingdom of God to come one day? Yes. Is the kingdom of God present now? Yes. Uh, is the kingdom of God spiritual? Yes. Is the kingdom of God physical? Yes. Is the kingdom of God in heaven? Yes. Is the kingdom of God on earth? Yes. Is the church part of the kingdom of God? Yes. Is the whole earth part of the kingdom of God? Yes. The complexities are vast in the way that the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. But here's what we need to do with all of these tensions, is that we need to learn how to live in the tension that the kingdom of God is really four things. That the kingdom of God is here, that the kingdom of God will come, that the kingdom of God is spiritual, and that the kingdom of God is physical. If we don't hold all four of those things in tension at the same time, we will inevitably recapitulate the historic injustices that the church has fallen into because historically at times the church has not held to each of those four things in tension. Let me unpack why. All right, for, consider the, the first two that I just said. The idea that the kingdom of God is here and that the kingdom of God will come. Uh, this tension has been systematized by theologians over the years in what could be called the already not yet. Maybe you've heard that before. Uh, this means that the kingdom of God has come, and so as a result, there are characteristics and expectations of the kingdom uh, and reflections of the kingdom that ought to be seen and experienced right now. Right? That's the already. But at the same time, we cannot assume that the, the fullness of the kingdom will be experienced now because it's also still to come in its fullest one day when Jesus returns and restores the creation completely and fully. That's the, the not yet. Uh, the name of your church actually centers on that idea. The, the whole tension of being in that in-between, right? Feeling like an exile in the midst of this transition time. This is uh, important for us to start here because there's very real consequences for us not holding that intention, that it's here and is to come. I mean, think about what happens if we overly think about the kingdom of God as something that's present right now. If we think about it in that way and we overemphasize the nowness of the kingdom, we will have very unrealistic expectations about life and what we ought to experience in life right now. There are those who would assume that the promises of the kingdom 
ought to be fulfilled and experienced fully now. And so when we hear things like, you know, in Isaiah 53, when we're told that by his wounds we are healed, we'll assume if the kingdom's present now, then we should all experience healing now. Or maybe we think about, you know, Philippians 4, uh, that my God shall supply all of my needs, and so I should never be without uh, what I want or what I need. Because there's this, if the kingdom of God is here present now, then I ought to have that provision now. Maybe Jeremiah 29, right, that tells us, I, you know, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans uh, to prosper you, not to harm you. If we overly believe that the kingdom is present now, then we'll assume that we ought to experience prosperity now. And maybe think about it in, in justice terms as well. You know, with, with justice, if we have an overemphasized nowness of the kingdom, we might actually expect to alleviate poverty and violence and injustice. But my friends, none of that's going to happen. We will never alleviate poverty. We will never alleviate the injustices and the violence of the world. I mean, this is part of what Jesus means when he tells us that the poor will always be with us. We will not experience all of that now. And so we have a problem if we overemphasize the nowness of the kingdom, believing that all those promises, promises that will be experienced in its fullest one day when Jesus returns, We'll have a problem if we experience that, or if we expect to have them now. So there are certain things that we won't experience until one day Christ's return. We have to hold that intention. But the other error about the kingdom of God is not just this, this nowness and the, the, the come, but there's also those second two that I had mentioned, the physical and the spiritual tension. Because think about what happens if we overly think about the kingdom of God as spiritual. What we'll do is we will turn the kingdom of God into an abstraction, this kind of metaphysical idea that has no real tangible realities now. now. To the passage that you heard read a minute ago in Matthew 4, Jesus shows us what exactly happens when he comes to proclaim the kingdom of God. Let me just reread this for you quickly. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Here's what I find striking about that. When Jesus begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom, what do we see happen immediately? We start to see physical healing, physical liberation happening. Things were tangibly taking place as Jesus proclaimed this good news about the kingdom. In other words, that the presence of the kingdom of God now, result, it does result in experiences of that kingdom now. And those experiences ought to be physical. They ought to be tangible. They ought to be real-life experiences that reflect the peace and the shalom, the restoration, the freedom of the kingdom of God. And when Christians have not believed this to be the case, there have been horrendous injustices that have come as a result. For example, wrong views of the kingdom is what led to centuries of assumptions about how the church ought to uh, expand throughout the world and to expand by all means necessary. It was justifiable to push the kingdom of God out because we didn't have to worry about having these tangible expressions about the kingdom of God. Instead, it, again, back to what we were talking about before, it just all became about conversions. 
The tangible expressions of the kingdom were not necessary. This was the justification for, you know, if you go way back, the Crusades. This was the justification for European colonialism that was undergirded by theological decrees that uh, came from the church that said that any lands inhabited by those who were not Christian could be taken by force. Those people could be made perpetual slaves uh, and they could be converted. The church uh, expansion and the conversion uh, that was taking place during the time of of, uh, the Puritans was also very much part of this as well. I mean, the Puritan justification for enslavement was essentially you can enslave a person as long as you spiritually evangelize them. If you did that, then the enslavement was justified. And again, these ideas, like wrong views of the kingdom of God, have not gone away. And I just heard someone recently justifying African enslavement as an ultimate good because, quote-unquote, that's how they became Christians, which is, by the way, just even historically nonsense. Uh, The oldest churches uh, in the world are African churches. Uh, Many of the church fathers, those those that created many of the theological categories that we use today as we know them were African, so that's just nonsense to begin with. But that kind of idea still persists. Uh, also, fairly recently, I was told uh, that mer- acts of mercy and justice really aren't worth it unless people are first converted. Quote, I just don't think it's worth it if they aren't also saved. I mean, such perspectives on the kingdom is truncated, full of error. It's a spiritualizing of the kingdom when a physical experience ought to exist now. Having said that, just quickly, there's also an opposite error to this whole spiritualizing physical dynamic. There's a flip error that would say that the kingdom of God is ultimately about social issues, that the kingdom of God is about pursuing justice. And so as a result, the gospel is about addressing poverty and injustice and inequities and the like. Uh, This is where many may fall into what's known as the the social gospel camp, camp, which is uh, it ties salvation to freedom and physical oppression and almost never insists on conversion and repentance, which that too is an extraordinarily truncated definition of the gospel and the kingdom. But why do I lay all this out? I lay all this out because there are very real consequences to a truncated kingdom definition. There is a a way to approach the kingdom, though, that actually brings an enormous amount of clarity that keeps us from falling into these errors. And more specifically, I think gives us a proper basis for pursuing justice in the world. Now, I realize I've been talking maybe a bit in abstractions, and so I want to speak finally to what this looks like practically. What does it look like for the church? And what does it look like for the church who desires to proclaim the same message that Jesus proclaimed, which was the gospel of the kingdom? What is it that we ought to be proclaiming, and how does that impact the way that we live? I want to look at that finally by considering, well, what is the church? Uh, Like everything else, we have to have a really robust understanding of the church uh, if we're going to understand how to move forward. Uh, And there's so many different places that we could go to try to define what the church is. Uh, But the one that stands out to me in relation to what we're talking about is in Ephesians 1. The Apostle Paul says this, and I'll just read this to you. He says, And God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus, all all things under Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fulfills everything 
in every way. Here's why that jumps out to me, that particular definition, that we are his, that there's, Jesus has this authority and that we are his body. So the, the church uh, is the body of Christ, the one who has all things under his feet. In other words, the all-powerful one who rules and reigns over all things, right? The, the king over all things is the one to whom we are connected. It might sound obvious, again, but if you're a Christian, Jesus, as king, means that his life, his death, and his resurrection are the basis for our understanding of who we are as the church. That's what it means for one to be a Christian, to understand that Jesus is king. So consider Jesus' work, the the work that Jesus accomplishes uh, on our behalf, and how that relates to our understanding and relationship to him. Jesus Christ, in his life, according to Philippians 2, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. It's important just to note that, that in Jesus' life, he lived this perfect life of service, a life of service for our sake so that we might become his righteousness. Jesus Christ, in his death, again, according to Philippians 2, says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, he became sin, taking the consequence of our sin upon himself on the cross, and he lays down his life for us that we might be free from the bonds of sin and death. Consider Jesus in his resurrection, again, according to Philippians 2. He was exalted to the highest place and whose name is above every name. Jesus, in his resurrection, he is raised to life, glorified, so that we too might experience the same. That, my friends is what it means to be part of the church, to be that king's people, the one who lived a life for us, the one who died a death for us, and the one who rose again for us. We are his people. We are the people of an all-powerful and yet humble king who laid down all of his rights and his comforts, his very life, for the good of others. For no one took his life, but he gave it up freely. If you're a Christian... That is what made you the king's people. That is what made you the church. And as a result, that is how we go about now living. That's the basis for how we move out now into the world. What does that mean practically? Here's where all of this intersects. You know, a minute ago, I referenced Psalm 89, which says that the righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. The throne of God, you know, in the Bible, it's not a literal throne, but it's rather a description of how he rules and reigns. It's it's the characteristics of his kingdom. The king who rules over a kingdom sits on a throne that's foundations, our righteousness, and justice. How does that idea and all that Jesus has done to accomplish our salvation, how does that impact now how we live as kingdom people in this world? I mean, if I were to ask you, You know, what is the role of the church in the world? And maybe even more specifically, if I were to ask you, what is your role? What is individually, what is your role as a Christian in the church? How would you answer that question? You know, as I've tried to answer that question for myself, uh, one thing that always comes to mind for me is uh, something that J.I. Packer, again, a very well-known theologian, He's drawing on John Calvin, uh, and this is what uh, Packer says. I think it's a very helpful summary of what the church is, and as a result, what you are. 
says, the purpose of the church is to make the invisible kingdom visible through faithful Christian living and witness bearing. John Calvin would add that though visible, it is nonetheless real. I think about that definition all the time. And the reason why I think about that definition all the time is because as the church, we are, we are part of the kingdom of God, but we're also distinct from that kingdom, right? So it's, that's not the same. Uh, the church, though, is a, is a redeemed people. These are things that we just talked about. We are a redeemed people, redeemed by our Savior King who laid down his life for us and welcomes us now into that kingdom, which is a kingdom of righteousness and justice, a kingdom that we will, uh, fully experience, we will not fully experience now, but a kingdom that will uh, nonetheless, because of the way that we live, be made visible through our lives in the way that we live. That kingdom that is to come one day is made visible now in the way that we live in this world. If you are a Christian, that's your calling as people in the kingdom of God to reflect the characteristics, the nature of the king as kingdom people. And that must lead us to be a people of righteousness and justice because that's the way God rules and reigns over all things. And if we are not a people of righteousness and justice, we have yet to understand the gospel of the kingdom of God. Think about how this plays out maybe in some of the most pressing justice issues of our day. And consider what it means for us to make visible the invisible kingdom of God as people of that kingdom. And think about the very practical ways we can reflect the king by similarly as he did, laying down our lives for the good of others not demanding our rights or our comforts, but rather thinking of others more than ourselves, just as Christ did. I mean, what does it mean to make the invisible kingdom of God visible, one of righteousness and justice, visible now in the ways that we love our neighbor, in the ways that we confront racism and its effects, in the ways that we address the issue of unplanned pregnancy and advocate for not only the mother, but also for the unborn? What does it mean in the ways that we, we process the, the new norms of sex and sexuality and gender? What does it mean for us to make the, the, the invisible kingdom of God visible now by addressing sexual exploitation of pornography and trafficking? What does, it, what does it mean to make the invisible kingdom of God visible now with how we handle those that are at our borders or the ways that we conduct ourselves at work or determine who we vote for? There's so many different ways that this impacts how we go about living in this world and how we approach justice issues in this world. And my encouragement would be simply this, and this is something that I have more and more felt a deep conviction over, is that when we are out in the world being a people of righteousness and justice, that is gospel ministry. It's not some side project. It's not just something that we task a particular pastor on staff to help us with or a team of people that are committed to, which those are good things. But it's something we are all called to. It is gospel ministry to be a people of justice in this world because we are proclaiming the kingdom of God a kingdom that will be a kingdom of restoration, redemption. Every time we point people to that coming restoration, we're proclaiming what Jesus proclaimed, which was the gospel of the kingdom. And so I pray that the Spirit of God might help us reject those truncated 
ideas of the gospel and the kingdom would help us have this robust picture of what he's doing in creation now and what he will do one day so that ultimately we might be faithful in proclaiming a full, holistic gospel that not only speaks to the individual salvation that people must experience, but also that speaks to the cosmic redemption that God is accomplishing in this world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who uh, both sees us individually. You know our name. On the cross, Christ died for our sins particularly, that we might experience personal redemption, restoration, salvation. We praise you that you have loved us in that way. God, we also thank you that you haven't called us to um, ignore or leave behind this world, but rather you've called us to be part of what you're accomplishing in this world, which is restoration and redemption. And Lord, we do thank you that you've given us a calling to be a people, your church, who in the, the lives that we live go out and point people to the coming restoration and redemption that's to come when Christ returns. God, would you give uh, all of us, would you give Exilic as a church boldness in these areas, confidence to know that as they move out to be people of righteousness and justice in this world, that they are doing gospel work, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And may your spirit empower them to be that bold prophetic voice in a world that so desperately needs to hear that there is a coming redemption, a coming restoration. And may people come to faith and trust in Jesus as a result of that proclamation. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.